0: The following podcast is brought to you by Rare Book School at the University of Virginia and sponsored by the Pine Tree Foundation of New York. To learn more about our programs and how you can support our school, please visit our website at www.rarebookschool.org. Thank you and enjoy. I'd like to welcome you to our... Sixth lecture of the Rare Book School Summer (coughs) Series, a series of lectures on book historical and bibliographical subjects sponsored by the Pine Tree Foundation of New York. But this is a unique lecture because it's the Rare Book School July 4th lecture, and what better person to give it than Matthew Brown? One of the true rising stars in American book history. He is the director of the University of Iowa Center for the Book and associate professor of English. He was a National Endowment for the Humanities Research Fellow at the Library Company in Philadelphia. He's been a Mellon Seminar Leader several times. At a very tender age, he was elected to full membership in the American Antiquarian Society, which is no trivial thing, believe me. Many of you will know Matt's book, The Pilgrim and the Bee, Reading Rituals and Book Culture in Early New England, published, I'm proud to say, by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2007, one of the best book historical presses in America. Um, In that book, you will recall that Matt very inventively uses the insights of performance studies and allies them um, in in clever and compelling ways to book history to think of new ways of thinking about American literary studies. um, do not walk to your local bookstore if you haven't seen this yet. That's also the author of uh, many articles. I'll only read the titles of 27 of the here. <laughs> I'll give you the one with my favorite title. Book History, Sexy Knowledge, and the Challenge of the New Order. <laughs> I don't know what that means we're in for today, but I hope we're going to get some book history... Some sexy knowledge and no new boredom. <laughs> that was an important contributor to the Oxford Companion to the book, and his scholarship goes on and on. Right now, he's working on a second book, for which he has the NEH Fellowship. It's technically entitled The Novel and the Blank, and it's an investigation of how the constraints of the print shop affected the literary culture and reading habits of colonial and early national America, I'm very pleased to introduce to you Matthew Brown.
1: I to look at the, um, the era that this holiday evokes. Uh, so it's going to be uh, kind of less action, a little more option. <laughs> less Madison, more the macaroni. <laughs> and Less red coat, and more red coat. <laughs> uh, a great variety. Oh, our window in this will be Robert Bell, a, 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 a Philadelphia bookseller and publisher. A great variety curious, of curious and useful books, whether old or new, that has come out in the American world of books. May be had at Bell's bookstore near St. Paul's Church in 3rd Street, Philadelphia. This very excellent work of Milton's Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained, with poems on several occasions, two volumes, may now be had for $6 at Bell's bookstore in 3rd Street, Philadelphia, with every other curiosity that has come out of it in the American world of books. So reads the typical promotional language of publisher and seller Robert Bell. Bell, a Scottish emigre, to the colonies by way of Dublin, worked in Philadelphia from 1768 to 1784. The pitch tells us something about Bell's values. He emphasizes the American world of books, the local world of native manufacturing. He stresses the curious or intriguing volume, the title of his novel, and he labels his <coughs> product, come out of it, attractive and accessible, available in social venues, such as shops, auctions, and libraries. So this kind of courtship context, or romance context, I think is that is uh, the word is not as awkward as it may seem. It appears in Ben Jonson's and Emma by Jane Austen. So, uh, and, and Bell's marketing, I think, is writing is, uh, on this kind of association. From a modern perspective, this strikes us as utterly normal—a uh, way to sell books, to diversify your product line, to promote local industry, to make things easy for the customer. But Bell marks a turn in the book culture of colonial and early national America. Bell published with a light touch, and he marketed with a heavy hand. In these roles, as publisher and marketer, Bell stands out. He printed imaginative literature and learned writing that had an unnecessary audience, and he sold titles with a circus-barker personality that oriented itself to the purchaser. And taking risks, he took liberties going beyond the customs and conventions of his early American predecessors. So what were these customs and conventions? Why does Bell differ? In the colonial period, the key to printing success, if by that we mean staying in business, was job printing. As with Gutenberg and indulgences, and it's Gutenberg's famous in the Bible but what got his business up and running in, in, in time were printing what were once handwritten in, indulgences. So as with Gutenberg and in indulgences, so too blanks, bills of lading, and legal forms animated print house production. Single sheet jobs such as these or almanacs, or by the 18th century newspapers, always took priority in the shop. Hugh Amory's careful statistical analysis in the colonial book in the Atlantic world attests to the importance of sheet counts generally. In a turn both pointed and admittedly arbitrary, James Green's scholarship, admitted by Jim, James Green's scholarship on Ben Franklin defined the book as a volume of 10 sheets or more, a costly venture that, given the capital, that would be tied up in paper, the most expensive print house resource. Needless to say, printers stock to avoid such risks. The importance of non-book printing beyond early America or the early modern period has been measured as well. In surveying the 1907 census of production in Britain, Simon Elliott finds that books were worth some 14% of the total value of print production, with job printing and periodical printing accounting for the regular textual experience of the readers. Uh, so that's just a, for, uh, open for discussion about the role of non-book printing in, in how we it. So the colonial print house's uh, reliance on government support made job printing all the more central in the context of the Atlantic periphery. For example, Franklin. Ben Franklin first goes to London to secure a press because he thinks he'll, he'll be set up as a government printer. Colonial printers wanted to study payments and secure politics of government job. Single-sheet jobbing appealed to a colonial printer, not because it was extremely lucrative, but because it supplied ready money in a cash-for-trade and cash-for-work. There's a lot there their job. Uh, there's single sheet printing, there's blank forms, there's government printing, there's single sheet These are all different, but none of them are that has come out. That's just the broad stroke and the difference I want to point out about, about that. Uh, what do these blanks look like? Um, this is uh, actually Franklin in that uh, This is a, a blank uh, bond where Franklin is owing 400 pounds. So if, if you know the autobiography, And bills and legal forms of currency required careful handling by compositors, directors, and press workers. Attention to layout out multiple runs uh, through the press, the incorporation of visual and verbal material, all of these practices were potentially laborious and were also va- motivated by graphic appeal. That is, the jobs might display the skills of the printer, that sort of leathered work. Um, The blank forms themselves—bonds, indentures, bills of lading, deeds—are instrumental or utilitarian works that entail handwriting for their completion. They are documents that mix manuscript and print. Jobbing is a kind of central but invisible part of cultural history. In restoring it recently to the attention of cultural history, I've 20 bibliographers and others have worked on jobs. I don't need to overattend the theater here, but in restoring it to the attention of cultural history historians. Uh, more broadly speaking, Peter Scaligrass has recently discussed jobbing with the propagation that the printing revolution incited handwriting, writing. Um, that is already through forms sort of generated manuscript participation. Yet beyond correcting a certain kind of media history, that is that this replaces that approach. You know, in the manuscript culture that it is a print culture, it's not clear what step forward is being made So it's this wonderful description. And Peter knows, knows the history, but just what are the implications of? And that's one thing that's larger property is of. Uh, as to books and book selling, uh, colonial printers and stock imports of a dependable sort, uh, of, of a dependable sort. Textbooks and other And only occasionally risk publishing a volume of more than 10 years. So government printing, single sheet of paper, mundane forms, script money in print, steady selling conduct, books. such as the American world of books before Robert Bell. No wonder that we might say, along with its foremost scholars, that the period's book culture is, and I quote, poor, Hugh Angry, shallow, Hugh Angry again, and monotonous, Jim Green and Hugh Angry. Uh, yet I think this perspective holds the era to a standard of a robust literary culture, uh, not getting the textual world a job means to do. The following frontispiece uh, front might mean better how we understand the value of text in colonial America. This is from George Wickham's penmanship, uh, which Franklin's good friend, the uh, scripter, Joseph Breitner, ordered for the library company and sent to you. So I'll read the caption, and you can sort of take it in the computer. caption's uh, down here. Uh, this is uh, what do I want to say it's uh, yeah. landscape yeah. format. That's a technical bibliographical term. Mm-hmm. I learned from mm-hmm. Microsoft mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> So, so, so yeah, it's like uh, uh, about 50 plates follow, and they're just engravings of. And keys, uh, I'm sorry, custom house keys and shipping denote trade, and the secretary's office state affairs. The figure whose book is supported by time implies history, law, and poetry. And that venerable old man, in whose ear fame stands whispering, uh, represents an ancient celebrated tenement. The boy below, who is studious in writing in his book, denotes youthful industry, and the figure above is the emblem of eternity to intimate that penmanship will be valued in practice. As long as the world endures.
0: <laughs> now, the framing architecture of the image emphasizes the locus of value and the culture of jockey.
1: That is, the custom house and the, the uh, Male maturation, male maturation, from industrious boy to celebrated, the penman is heroized. The penman is called old and ancient, but he looks pretty vigorous with that beard, and he's active like the boy in the moment. Contrast them yeah, with uh, the emblem in the lower right corner: the figure of history, law, and poetry, supported by a male character who clearly is ancient. The reader, feminized and vulnerable, with exposed breasts, holding a book that is often inoperable. It's, I mean, you notice the government it's sort of perpendicular to the uh, to the gutter. Um, just kind of clutching the board for support, and the other hand far away. Uh, this figure represents literature. This long quote. Oh, right. This figure represents literature of the Belle and or the writing associated with literary art, relative to the static, independent figure, the, the penman employed uh, currency. Thus, the frontispiece proclaims a commercial and bureaucratic world of text, where the printed word is demoted relative to manuscript, or handwriting power, and where literature is at best for the ages. Not of the movement. That's the exact figures. Now, blanks continue through. This is a, a, a bond from 1777. What's interesting here is that what I find very intriguing historically is historical artifacts. Is like obviously, they're dating, um, they build in dating options for the future, right? So, this is 1771, You know, you're showing what date you in but this one is uh, bracketed because it's clearly made um, before 1776, but it's signed 1777. And notice here, scratch, scratching out uh, the language of year of the reign of our sovereign Lord race, the third, group. Uh, uh, third, the third, the third, the third, the So. This is So. This is Literature. Bell is known for publishing Thomas Paine's Common Sense and the controversy ensuing from the author's dispute with the publisher, with, with Bell. Recent scholarship has provided searching commentary about Bell's activities, beginning with Jim Green's foundational work in the colonial Book of the Atlantic World. We have a portrait of Bell as a savage, trades entrepreneur. Richard Shur's The Enlightenment and the Book captures the Bell alert to, to the market, for, uh, to the market for key genres from the Age of Reason: law, science, and history. Sarah Knopp taxed differently using Bell as a kind of aided in the format for the culture of sentiment in British America. What I hope like to add to this work is contact with Bell's imprints themselves. Rarely called on these paratexts, the surround of the main text. Uh, these, these paratexts, his petitions and circulars, his filler and reprints, his editorial formatting, and even his annotations of the main text, present evidence of Bell's attitude toward publishing and marketing. And there's a relatively recent book by A. Taylor she looks at his work, his work, uh, his literature about war, his literature about just Chesterfield uh, and plants. And I'm just I'm looking at it more of the kind of, uh, public. Uh, okay, so one offsite, one uh, offsite by this film, so auction advertisement, I think will help us get into what that's like. So one offsite uh, of auction advertisement from 1778, gives us the broad outlines of Bell's self fashioning and self-presentation. He labels himself provador to the sentimentalists and professor of book auctioneering. He targets his audience with descriptors suitable to the era's literary culture and with attempts at persuasion. He he supplies reasoning for rationalists and reasoning for sentimentalists. And (laughs) I think to some of my undergrads you know, when you're doing archival work, work with uh, 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 actual imprints for database information, you, know, you, you see sort of actors like, using the language these are imposed on the point. So again, you know, age 80 degrees, 80 degrees. You know, here, uh, know the haw as a publisher, is very much happy to that. So you get, you get uh, a voice from the past uh, presenting those terms, uh, rather than using it in a tough one, and then it will be in that So uh, uh, yeah, so he's, uh, he's using this language in the paper. Uh, the rhetoric is aligned with the titles he reprints, of uh, sentence, commentaries, of all, of all, of all, and Robertson's history of Charles Smith, or paired later in his career with a wave of popular novels associated with and the cult of sensibility, Mackenzie, Rousseau, and Bell understands a readership attuned to enlightenment and antithesis. The outsized personality of Bell is rendered in the parallelism of, of probador and professor. The labor, faintly exotic diction, of probador seems to wing. At the would-be transparent and felt promotion of the sentimentalist, it's cognate, is purvey, and it suggests that such feelings are not so immediate that they require planning and supply. Uh, this is the business of sentimental Professor of book auctioneering sounds almost laudilium, and perhaps r- r- reflects Bell's good reverence for the in the title of governments. Um, charismatic auctioneering itself is one of Bell's innovations in the community market. While he will necessarily push certain titles, the auction is an arena of choice. Given his theatrical comportment, it understands how bookishness was not only a realm of solitary learning, but also a venue for sociable exchange. So manifest in Bell's persona is a book culture geared, is a book culture uh, geared to learning, leisure, and literary art, to voluntary reading, to select one title over another. Very different from the utilitarian of the preceding generation. So just to sort of Bell's early reprints of imaginative literature in the American market reflect his entrepreneurship, while also typifying the foreign country's cost-saving strategies. Here's the first title associated with Bell, not surprisingly joke uh, notice, notice what becomes customary for Bell as an angle for his title. You're a um, Richard Schur, author of the Enlightenment book, calls well, this a curious habit, but I think we do better to see Bell making his mark within the journal of the qualifying. He prints not for a patron and not for a bookseller, but rather isolates the purchaser as the target audience, mindful of the endpoint consumer who must be persuaded to buy. Another early remit. Uh, uh, his 12 24-page, 1768, reprinted in of the Old Smith's The traveler, uses similar uh, um, The economical single sheet printing for this relatively short poem uh, means that Bell still must fill the pamphlet with copy. It's a certain poem, even within that form. Uh, he still is to fill the pamphlet with copy. In filler, he adverts to the added value uh, uh, that, uh, in, sorry, in filler, he adverts to this added value of the, the extra atoms to the uh, pamphlet, and to this more affordable parsing, as it's been a person from Griffith's literary film and um, Mrs. Bell. Um, five editions of this poem, without the matrimonial tale and the adventures of Tom Redmond have been sold in Great Britain at no less price than two shillings, and sixpence of this currency. The matrimonial tale, or the double transformation as, well as the title embeds within, within it a character, Jack Bookworm, especially to Bell's personality. The poem, tells of, uh, the poem tells of the conversion of a coquette uh, to a perfect beauty, but it begins with this male protagonist. And this is It's Secluded from domestic strife, Jack Bookworm led a college life. A fellowship of 25 made him the happiest man alive. He drank his glass and cracked his joke, and frankly wondered as he spoke. It's the no social type we made to the moon.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Jack performing that. Okay,
1: is the scene of, uh, of The Fellowship, uh, but Bell's attraction to the double transformation, he has other goldsmith options, is perhaps in this opening figure, where bookishness is equal parts learning and sociability. Now, we can play a normative role for Bell as this marriage story indicates. Um, his promotional voice creates an ideal reader and ideals of manner. For example, in the first of Bell's surviving American catalogs from 1766. Sixty-eight. He excerpts and rewrites John Gay's fable of uh, the elephant and the bookseller. Uh, he just reduces it to six lines. Uh, uh, most of it from uh, Gay, but some variants. An elephant, days of yore, the shop of learning for The page he with attention spread, and wisely thought on what he read. Not like, like some modern coxcombs lining only the margins brown and binding. So God substitutes modern coxcombs for modern dealers in the source, suggesting a way to distance himself as a dealer right, from the message of the fable, while also denigrating attention to fine packaging. He also adds to Gay's fable the line, and wisely thought on what he read, um, you know, the elephant. Uh, 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 in the original, the elephant being recruited by the bookseller to write a history saying." You know, you know Greek. Write a controversial tale about you know, controversial response to the Trinity. Okay. So uh, it's a very different dramatic uh, uh, sort of setting. The bookseller comes off rather poorly in, in the source. Um, it's not even a seller uh, in in uh, in um, So the, uh, in, in rewriting it, it's wisely called what went red. Um, in, in the original. There's no wise reflection. There's are just that all kind of disagreeing having a conversation with folks So, this world is changing. Uh, in that, he prescribes, in Bell's revision, he prescribes reflection as a kind of key component of reading. The same catalog features an extended verse rendition of the Antoine Boudoir and the fable, two books, and that's the that kind of hanging out uh, The verse was likely Bell's invention.
0: You know, I, this
1: is, this is bigger, yeah. this, Well, i talked about it a little bit, but I <laughs> you know. It's entertaining more of so hopefully
0: this is the could um, So uh, I'm just going to talk a little bit about it. So
1: two books placed. This is how get two books placed. Nine in a bookshop. The one yielded turkey fop. The other's dress was somewhat plainer, being humble, humbly humbly clothed with blue paper. The cock's come proud of his laced coat, curled up his nose, and thus he spoke. And speak he does. The foppish the Favish book keeps scoring heaps scorn on his mate. How can a gentleman dressed like me endure with such scoundrel company and the wife. Like? Now, plain Quaker then with truth replied, your less red coat has raised your problem. And that's what Gary doesn't like a the front person of this. Kevin Hoffman, who's about Kevin So, uh, the red coat then demands that the bookseller move his meaner brethren away from him. The story concludes what a purchaser up uh, blue cover lifts and eyes him, turns over his page, admires and eyes him. Bell varies this fable for a local audience, right? redcoat and plain Quaker have no precedent in the French original or English translations. The fable's more about the gaudy book, void of inward merit to attract fox and coxtones, place on their back, it sends at these two messages. It instructs purchasers about their proper role, that only fox display their books. And it recommends the internalization of content, the inward merit of the book. It also thus continues this pattern of deriding the appreciation of, um, the appreciation of, of, of fine books. Um, and in it, it arguably constructs a kind of norm, the masculinity, the fob, the game, the and, and the all were images of effeminacy, which would play all the more in the early national American period as a way to define manhood against European. Stereotypes. So, and the origin of this is the Yankee feudal You know, I mean, it's originally a loyalist song, right, intended to just or, derive the colonial troops. And then the troops I mean, themselves take it up and they kind of appropriate it and take it back to the crowd. Well, Bell's doing the same kind of thing here, but, but, just, you know, trying to disproportionate uh, with, uh, with this kind of thing. So, uh, the classic definition of wit in the 18th century, imagination tempered by judgment. Combines with the public, sociable, enlightened, and direct leader of Bell to highlight his mode of straight male uh, self-presentation. The stage for this self was the auction. Bell was a larger than life auctioneer. We get a taste of his pattern and style from the circulars and documents used in his career. And again, we see his innovations in the American market. A memo in support of a 1774 petition to the Pennsylvania Assembly to authorize book auctions argues that, quote, the desire of the book purchasers deserves to be considered, as well as the desire of the sellers. And it's the book seller, but again, you see this sort of of reader-oriented. More readers, White's Belt, have been lifted under the literary standard in one week by the well-known invitation of, Gentlemen, please walk into the auction. Books are now going for half-price. Pray, gentlemen, step into the auction. And can be lifted in seven years by the dull motive, sir. I assure you, it costs 12 shillings sterling in London, and I cannot take a copper less than 25 shillings per Mr. Niplow sells them at that, and Mr. Noodle too. Therefore, I cannot take the copper take one copper less than 25 shillings So for so Bell, no. auctions provide cash on the barrel head for a scrap printer, thus better than your literary readers in this type of Those sales by auction, although at an underpriced, realize it's dead stock into London and would sooner enable him to repair with ready money to the paper manufacturers in order to make another attempt upon some celebrated author whose sublime works might diffuse universal knowledge to every corner of the American economy. So Bell was reader-centered as well, and, and no automatically claiming that at the time of the exhibition, books will then instantaneously either be sold or sacrificed. Customers must act or lose the chance of the title. Now Bell's contention was that sales begets sales. Uh, whereby the magic amallo, what are you talking about, the magic now <coughs> let books skip from shelf to shelf again okay, Bell's words, helping the cause of learning to uh, and then learn. Bell's language had to feature of his,
0: uh, a few
1: more sections. Bell's language and attitude feature in the annotate and formatting of his reprint. Bell published the first American edition of Paradise Lost in 1777, but it is the 1770 miscellany of built in the tracks that is perhaps more striking. He presents in full uh, pre an old-looking glass uh, for the uh, new uh, lady clergy. He, uh, he presents in full considerations of the likeliest means to remove higher from the church as is assistant taken out the temple by the building. And then compiles Extracts from above Reformation, an apology for speculations, and hand-meditations. These are a set of anti-clerical essays and passages that deliver a Milton on, according to Bell's preface, the gospel method of rewarding its preachers. The topical context is an ongoing uh, an ongoing, uh, we go. we got it. ongoing debate uh, <laughs> about times and of the ministers. And uh, income levels for a The overt motive in Bell's preface is to make Milton's message accessible. He refers to the a word's works editions from 1598 to 1754, comparing how his edition uh, is, is, act- is as accurate as it is, while making this one found only inside Milton's words, uh, works. more for yet, his repurpose Milton portrays Bell's concern both business and cultural. These concerns are revealed in footnotes. Bell feels compelled to add to Milton's. He yeah. main text, Milton's uh, consideration, and then uh, Bell stepping into the hook there. Um, the context, interesting. just the main text context, is that uh, uh, Bell Lazier criticizing the pastoral work that he thinks could just be uh, uh, work, uh, done through uh, careful attention, by the way, to the scripture right? of the heart, the mouth speak. The practice of many of the modern clergy illustrates to that. With barefaced impudence, they retail their nefarious Sunday half-hour speeches, tongue-tied and dumb, except with steel, with regard to the sublime, elevated, and enlightening truths of the everlasting gospel, because their hearts are far stranger from that. Would you be pleased without a miracle to hear the dumb speak only change the subject from spiritual to temporal things, mentioned by the reduction of clergy salaries, ecclesiastical, taxes, tithes, and their large church revenues, then will you hear their tongues fully unloosed, and they will talk extemporarily for whole hours to them, because in these earthly, carnal, and sensual things, their hearts are wholly interested. <laughs> so his critique <laughs> of ministerial power reflects, in part, Bell's enlightenment ethics, and he evidently saw a market for this literature of controversy. But what is striking is Bell's animus around public speech and self-interest. You know, access to them, that's what I'm trying to read. Uh, much of the early national era, we'll see a contest for cultural authority between novelists and ministers. Captain Davidson's written on the schedule that yeah, uh, early American novelists build into their narration areas who were are essentially moral and to try to counteract the fact that um, the ministers are saying, don't read fiction, don't read novels. A, so you have a kind of war for cultural authority there. I think something similar might be
0: going on here. It's something it's, it's,
1: it's, I guess, is <laughs> what I'm trying to get at, this kind of towards of the clergy. Uh, uh, that is, the Sunday half hour. Uh, i sorry, so here I think you see Bell waging a war between publishers and ministers rather than, say, novels and ministers. Uh, the Sunday half hour speeches contrast with the ext- uh, extemporary entertainment of the Enlightenment auctioneer. Bell may see this mirror image as well, getting paid for, in fact, just using the universal knowledge. That's his Enlightenment sort of foundation based baseline rather than, say, uh, These business concerns are also revealed, so that's the cultural anxiety, I guess, of what's going on there. the business concerns are revealed in this note, I and mean, in other it's going to be a concern about laborers to be fairly compensated. So, from Bell's uh, perspective and experience, uh, book selling publishers swapping out church pulpit for auction podium are due to the audience, given to me. Bell's belief in literary art, this is my last example. Book. Bell's belief in literary art did not prevent him from strong-handed editing that perhaps undermined the effect of literary art. His clumsy formatting of the first American edition of Mackenzie's classic novel, Sensibility man, and Man of Feeling, reveals a businessman's interest, though perhaps short-term. Mackenzie's work presents the fiction of a compiling editor whose preface begins the novel. Bell hard to C by inserting an ad, down here, right, uh, an ad for another novel of sentiment. And court in the blank space after the colon, the, the conceit of the novel is also to indicate missing uh, chapters as the reader proceeds. But Bell ruins this strategy by presenting a table of contents to the <laughs> totally incoherent. I mean, you're surprised, all well the process of seeing it sort of complete. So, uh, but I think what he's doing, he's trying to divert the fact that he has filler. This is he's uh, got extras here that we make it more appealing. He ruins this strategy by presenting a table of contents. This is a variant from any of the ten British editions of four French that preceded So, uh, it allows Bell to show the added value of appended works uh, to the end of the volume, though it disrupts the immersive experience of Sensibility's fiction in world. So, uh, uh, the legacy of, uh, of Bell's liberties. Uh, on the one hand, I think, you know, his idea of uh, auctioneering, uh, a salesmanship, uh, a way in which uh, sales get sales, seems like a positive uh, uh, force for confusing knowledge. On the other hand, you had know, less of a of his uh, uh, gender knowledge, as, he, as he, the literacy takes in that fashion. But one of the last tra- traces that we have of Bell brings us <coughs> home, as it were, and this is a two parts. An anecdote from Chastelot's travels in North America, a French officer who wrote up traveling uh, from 1780 to 1782, evokes a bell we've met so far, but with an important final lesson about a book culture's legacy. In a passage about the expense of staying in inns during the war, so even after the, abolition, or even after the abolition of paper money and when all payments were made in the species, translator recalls one of Bell's strategies. Um, so uh, uh, an absence of uh, currency. Uh, the translator had once given Bell an Irish copy of Sheridan's School for Scanner, with a prologue and epilogue taken from God's League's annual register, which Bell reprinted for a dollar. This assemblage of reprinting is no surprise, but the translator continues. In travel through Virginia, some months after, I was surprised to see, in many of the inns, even in the most remote parts of the country, this celebrated country. and uh, And upon inquiry, found that Mr. Bell had passed his way to the spring, and successfully circulated in payment this new species of paper currency. For as he, as Bell, observed, who would not prefer Sheridan Sterling to, to the counterfeit creations of Congress, or even of Robert Lawrence? It's a printed matter, kind of the realm, indeed printed imaginative writing so valued, the sociable space of the end as a place for literary experience, even the alliterative the, illiterate balance of Sheridan Sterling and counterfeit creations. The anecdote is pure Bell. Most perhaps, importantly, perhaps, is the way the wit itself serves, is inadvertently, a legacy point, whereby the copies remain in hand, part of a posterity, a cultural inheritance. In its small way, Bell's reprint of Sheridan reminds us of the mission of RDS and of the humanities written that is, to preserve, transmit, and interpret our cultural deposits. Of this comedy turned cash, the Chasseur passage concludes Nor was any depreciation attempted. Where the intrinsic value is so this spent with the character of wit and freedom, so not to sell or sacrifice the a hyped-up money, but rather to cherish and protect. Thank you.